Well, if there's anything that's become crystal clear to us over the last two to three months, it's that Christians and Christianity in general are, well, on the nose uh, here in Australia, out of favour. There's no denying that over the last few months there's been a lot of vitriol expressed towards Christians, whether it be on the streets or TV or in the newspapers or uh, through the social media. It seems that never before has biblical Christianity been so at odds with Australian society. And so it is that many Christians in this nation have never felt so, so isolated or disliked or, or vulnerable as they do right now. Uh, in fact, truth be known, I felt it just a, a little bit myself recently. Uh, when a few weeks back, we church leaders gave you a pastoral statement uh, where we outlined what the Bible says about marriage and homosexuality. And, and the truth is, that process, it caused me to pause and consider what ramifications might come from my putting my name to that statement. Uh, ramifications for me and for my family. Now, actually, actually nothing at all happened. At least, and nothing, at least nothing's happened yet. But I think it did make me realise more than ever before that Christianity seems to be on track for, for a head-on collision with our society. And given the result of the recent postal survey, I'd say Christianity is almost certainly going to come off second best. It's like there's this great, big, unstoppable force coming our way. And increasingly, it seems that we're going to find that, that it costs us to live out our faith. Uh, right now, I've got a relative in Canada, a doctor, who's being threatened with deregistration because as a Christian who considers human life sacred, uh, she refuses to refer her patients for assisted suicide. A few months back, a leader in an American mission agency was in my home telling me that if someone in a homosexual lifestyle were to apply to his mission... They couldn't turn them down for that reason. They'd have to find another one. Uh, otherwise, they'd run the risk of their agency being sued and shut down for discrimination. And recent developments here in Australia suggest that, that we're not that far behind. But as we Christians start to feel the heat rising more and more, it's good to remember that, that it's nothing compared to the, the furnace-like conditions that faced Israel around 850 BC. Now, if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you, can I encourage you to grab one now and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. That's uh, page 552 of the church Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you're looking that up, let me remind you that wicked Ahab is now king in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he, along with his evil wife Jezebel, have banned the worship of God in Israel, leading the people to worship false gods instead, in particular the gods Asherah and Baal. Uh, Baal, you might remember, was worshipped as the god of storms, the one uh, whose followers relied on to bring rain to the earth. But of course, there is only one god who brings the rain. And it ain't Baal. 
And so in order to reveal himself as the one true God, uh, the Lord has brought a drought on the land, announced by his faithful prophet, Elijah, who's been in hiding ever since. Uh, God keeping him under Ahab's radar at a poor widow's home in Sidon. Now, as today's passage begins, we're told that it's been three whole years since it last rained. So you can only imagine how dry and brown everything must be. Now, God wants Elijah to confront King Ahab in order to bring this drought to an end. Read with me from chapter 18, verse 1, 18.1. For a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now Ahab has been really feeling the impact of the drought. And so one day he and his second in command, a man by the name of Obadiah, go out looking for grass to to feed their livestock. And as they search different parts of the land, suddenly Elijah appears to Obadiah and asks to make an appointment to see his boss, King Ahab. As it turns out, Obadiah is actually a secret believer, a faithful and gutsy man who's been hiding a hundred of God's prophets in two caves and bringing them food and water to keep them alive, secretly protecting them from Ahab and his bloodthirsty wife. But Obadiah is worried. He's worried that if he now goes and sets up this meeting... Elijah might disappear again. And then Ahab will get angry with Obadiah and kill him. So Elijah gives his word that that he'll be there to meet Ahab at the designated time and place. Here, read with me from verse 9. Verse 9. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah to Elijah. That you are handing handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as the Lord your God lives... There is not a nation or kingdom where the master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah goes off and tells Ahab what's happened and then Ahab comes out to meet Elijah who, true to his word, is there to meet him. You troubler of Israel, Ahab calls out to Elijah. But Elijah will have none of it. I haven't made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. So he knows it's it's Ahab's idolatry that's brought this terrible drought on Israel. So now it's time to show everyone who the one true God is. 
And with that, Elijah sets up a challenge. Uh, the ultimate showdown. On one side will be Ahab, along with, 400, with 450 of his prophets and their god, Baal. And on the other side will be Elijah, alone, with his god, the Lord. Uh, the challenge, whichever god can bring down fire on their sacrifice, he is the one true god. And so Ahab accepts the challenge and a great crowd gathers on top of Mount Carmel to watch the contest unfold. Now the thing is, I can't tell this story any better than it has been recorded for us here in the pages of the Bible. So let's read it together now, shall we? From verse 20. Verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Uh, obviously too scared of Ahab to say a word. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. I call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Now, don't forget, okay, that bringing down lightning on a sacrifice should be a pretty straightforward job for the God of storms, right? Well, let's read on and find out. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Uh, uh, perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy or uh, travelling. On a Caribbean cruise, perhaps. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. He's cheeky, isn't he? So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. I wonder why not. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four 
large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. You know, obviously, Elijah is setting this up as an absolutely impossible challenge, isn't he? At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Okay, so no shouting, no dancing, no slashing, no hypnotic trances, just a simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. Burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Well, what an extraordinary story, hey? Can you imagine the sight? And no wonder in the end the people conclude that the Lord is God, the one true God. But in order to leave absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind, Elijah then tells Ahab to hurry up and get home because a big storm's coming. Despite the cloudless blue sky above them, and despite the fact that it hasn't rained for three whole years, Elijah prays and prays and prays again for rain. And sure enough, before long, the sky turns black and it starts bucketing down with rain. And so there on the top of Mount Carmel, God wins a spectacular victory, showing everyone that he is the one true God of storms. But unfortunately, not everyone is willing to concede defeat. When Ahab goes home and tells his wife, Jezebel, what's happened, she is furious. Read with me from chapter 19, verse 1, 19, 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Whoa. Anyone else picturing that evil fairy tale queen Maleficent right now? (laughs) Obviously this woman does not like losing. Well, when Elijah hears this awful, awful threat, he is overcome with fear. And runs away to Judah in the south, out of Jezebel's reach. 
and then uh, leaving his servant behind, Elijah wanders out into the desert all alone, uh, totally dejected. He sits down under a tree where he more or less asks God, let him die. Seems that Elijah's had enough. Perhaps he he thought that the showdown on Mount Carmel would mark the end of all the opposition. After all, if that hadn't convinced the people to follow God, what would? Sure didn't convince Jezebel, and and she's obviously not just going to sit back and calmly let her subjects return to the Lord. And so having just spent three years in hiding, now it seems like Elijah's got to keep living with a bounty on his head. It's all just too much for this poor old prophet to bear. So God in his mercy sends Elijah his very own personal baker in the form of an angel who lays out a picnic for him. Elijah manages to eat some food and and then after a sleep the the angel encourages him to have seconds. It's obviously an Italian angel. Eat. And then strengthened by the food, Elijah spends the next six weeks walking further away from Israel, all the way down to Mount Horeb, where he retreats into a cave. Seems he's burnt out and ready for early retirement. But God meets him there and gently asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? In other words, Elijah, this isn't where you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to run away like this. To which Elijah answers, well, actually, God, you know, I, I, I've tried my best for you. But quite frankly, it's all been a waste of time. I'm, I'm still the only one that follows you. And now Jezebel's out for my blood. It's all totally hopeless. But then God tells Elijah to go outside the cave because he's about to pay him a personal visit. And so Elijah stands at the mouth of the cave and suddenly a great wind blows and tears apart the rocks and the mountain. But we're told that God isn't in the wind. And then next, there's a great earthquake and the whole mountain trembles. But God isn't in the earthquake either. After which there's a great all-consuming fire. But again, God's not in it. Then finally, after all these great, big, spectacular wonders, God does come, unexpectedly, in the form of a gentle whisper. Once again, he gently asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? To which Elijah gives the same answer. Everyone's abandoned you, God. The prophets are dead. I'm all alone. The world's winning. We're losing. It's all hopeless. But God is not the least bit discouraged. As always, he has a plan. Elijah, you need to go back. Your job's not done yet. I want you to anoint a new king in Aram, another in Israel. And I want you to designate a a replacement for yourself too. A man by the name of Elisha. Because these three people, Elijah, 
will bring Ahab and Jezebel down. What's more, Elijah? Here's some encouraging news for you. Truth is, you're just one of 7,000 people who are faithful to me. 7,000 who have never worshipped Baal. No, you're not alone at all. Here, read with me from chapter 19, verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. But what an encouraging encounter with God this must have been for Elijah. So now, with fresh courage and vision, Elijah heads back to the northern kingdom, finds a farmer named Elisha, and calls him as his new apprentice. And Elisha obediently walks away from the safety and security of his home and career to faithfully serve God in his new role. Elijah is not alone. The point of the wind and earthquake and fire and the gentle whisper, well, I reckon it's a bit like God saying, you know, Elijah, sometimes, sometimes you'll see me acting through spectacular wonders. And the ravens who serve as waiters, uh, uh, bottomless flower jars, um, Fire falling from the sky. But sometimes, Elijah, I do my work in ways that are invisible and, and subtle, unspectacular, like a gentle whisper. But I'm always at work. No matter how bleak things look, I'm always in control and I will always have my faithful people. How encouraging for Elijah to hear. You see, he's just now got to get on with his job of boldly and faithfully serving God. Leaving the results to him. Knowing that God's got the situation well in hand. 
Oh, how motivating, how freeing for Elijah. In the end, the people on Mount Carmel learned that the Lord, he is God. And now Elijah's learned to let the Lord be God, no matter how bleak things look. And you know, it's an important lesson that we here today need to learn too. In fact, it's the, it's the very same lesson we learn when we look at Jesus, who faced unparalleled opposition and crushing discouragement, yet who never once failed to trust his heavenly Father, faithfully serving him to the very end. By all accounts, on that first Good Friday, the world had won, but then, but then, early Sunday morning, in a dark tomb, God raised Jesus back from the dead, spectacularly turning what seemed like the greatest defeat into the ultimate victory. And so I guess it comes as no surprise that in the centuries that have followed, no matter how fiercely his people have been persecuted, God has been steadily growing his church around the world. Occasionally he still uses spectacular means like mass revivals. But more often than not, it's through the unspectacular. You know, through quiet, mundane ways. As parents read the Bible with their children. As believers pray for their lost friends. As missionaries take the gospel across cultures. And yes, even through things as simple as an invitation to an evangelistic Filipino dinner. God uses all those quiet, mundane, unspectacular ways to grow his church. And it is unstoppable. Just like a trick birthday candle. You know, you try to blow it out. And for a moment it's reduced to a smouldering ember but then whooshka it's back again it's unstoppable that's certainly what Paul's persecutors in the city of Corinth discovered in our second Bible reading this evening did you notice they tried as hard as they could to stamp out the church but they couldn't do it why because because God had sovereignly chosen a people of his very own in that city and it has been the same scenario repeated across the globe and throughout history. The mighty Roman Empire couldn't stop the church. The Catholic Counter-Reformation couldn't stop it. And Nazism couldn't stop it. Communism couldn't stop it. They've all tried and they've all failed. And now... In our society, secularism is having a go. That worldview that the religion should be expelled from the public square, that God's word has no place anymore in guiding the ethical decisions of our culture. And at its extreme, the view that Christianity should be encouraged to shrivel up and disappear altogether. Now it's secularism's turn. 
But friends, it too will ultimately fail. Because as Jesus once said, he is building his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Oh, how encouraging that should be for us. How motivating, how how freeing. Especially as we now feel the heat of opposition rising in this country. So how should we respond to that opposition? Well, as I finish, let me suggest uh, three ways, very, very briefly. Firstly, friends, we should never compromise with the world, as most of the Israelites did in their worship of Baal. Obviously, today's passage shows us that the majority isn't always right. And so we should stick uncompromisingly to the ways of God laid out for us in his word. Less concerned with whether we're on the wrong side of history, as they say, and more concerned with whether we're on the wrong side of God, the Lord of history. We should never compromise. Secondly, We should never give way to despair, as Elijah did after Mount Carmel. When we hear the taunts on the talk shows or or read the nasty comments on social media, friends, we shouldn't be intimidated or discouraged. No, we need to remember that ultimately we are on the winning side. God is with us. Even though at times that the choices of our society might disappoint us so much or or sadden us or threaten our way of life, God is always in control. And so we can trust him no matter what. There's no need to despair. And thirdly and finally, We should now courageously live for God. Like like Obadiah, taking risks to advance God's kingdom. Like Elisha, being ready to give up our comfort and security, if that's what it takes to obey Jesus. And like Elijah, praying that God would open people's eyes and bravely and unashamedly warning them of sin and judgment while holding out the offer of forgiveness through Jesus. Courageously pushing back against the tide of secularism as we're enabled and then simply leaving the results to God knowing that he's got it well in hand and that he will use our quiet, mundane, unspectacular acts of faithful service to his own good ends. As the brave and godly reformer Martin Luther wrote, 500 years ago, at a time when the blowtorch had really been turned up on Christians, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed 
his truth to triumph through us. Friends, the Lord, he is God. So let's bravely live for him, no matter what. Let's pray. Father God, we want to praise you now for who you are, the, the sovereign Lord of history, the one who is in complete control of all things, the one who has chosen a faithful people for yourself. Lord, we are sorry for the times when uh, the opposition of our culture overwhelms us with worry and fear. I thank you that Jesus has died and, and he rose again to give us an eternal hope. Lord, we pray for our country as it moves further and further away from you. We pray that you would have mercy and draw many back to yourself. And Father, please use us in that as we simply get on with the job of serving Jesus and and making him known through those quiet, mundane, unspectacular ways. Father, we look forward uh, to that time when the, the struggle will be over, when Jesus returns And every niche bows to him. Until then, Father, please help us to never compromise, never despair, but instead to bravely and confidently stand up for what is right and good and true. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.